Welcome to the What We Lost podcast. In the summer of 2020, Mark and Craig Kilberger's lives had become a nightmare. The organization they had built from nothing was clinging to survival. They were working 18-hour days to keep their heads above water, and their families were receiving almost daily death threats. In the midst of all this, they were called to testify before the Parliamentary Committee looking into the CSSG controversy. Instead of answering lingering questions about the program, they faced four hours of relentless attacks from MPs looking for nothing more than to score political points. I'm Martin Luther King III, and this is the What We Lost podcast. Political Roadkill The Kilbergers' lives had become a nightmare. The organization they had built from literally nothing was clinging to survival, and they were working 18-hour days to keep their heads above water. To make matters so much worse, they and their families were under personal threat. Most Canadians would have been sickened to read the emails and hear the voicemails coming into Wee's headquarters. Listen here, you bunch of corrupt motherfuckers, said one. Get the fuck out of the country and close the building up now. We're coming for you, and we're not fucking around. We are serious. We're gonna fucking burn you guys out. Get the fuck out of the country. Hello, this is the people of Canada, said another. And we are calling to find out when you're returning the rest of every fucking cent you were given. If we find out you haven't returned every goddamn cent for your fake satanic garbage organization, we want every fucking penny returned back to the government. One email read, Both of the corrupt burgers need to be fucking hung. Both of you are lying pieces of shit. Perhaps the most shocking was this. We are praying for the savage, brutal, excruciatingly painful murders of the Kilberger brothers who are fucking faggots, queers, losers, cowards, cocksucking, child-molesting, HIV-infected, douchebag, maggot pieces of human excrement. We pray that they both get COVID-19, along with their dirty, disgusting, idiot, moron, retarded, jerk-off, rotten, vile, evil families, and fucking die ASAP. And then there were the tweets, the most disturbing of which came from a notorious private investigator named Derek Snowdy. On July 28th, he tweeted, I wonder if Craig and Mark Kilberger know that we know exactly where they live and where their families spend their time. A week earlier, the Toronto Sun had run a piece by Brian Lilly that included Mark's home address. Online forums were soon filled with vile commentary that referenced Lilly's coverage. Board members who were aware of the death threats insisted the brothers contact the police. Officers visited their homes 
told them to make changes to their daily routines and programmed the brothers' home phone numbers into a rapid response system. They advised us that our kids should no longer play outside unsupervised and never play in the front of the house, Craig recalled. Trying to explain this to kids was just unreal and horrifying. We were used to criticism, but this was something different, so much worse. Invasions of privacy and feelings of insecurity extended to Kenya, where the Kilberger family owns a residence that was used by Craig, Mark, and various other WE staff who frequently traveled to the country. At one point, a freelance journalist working for the Globe and Mail posed as a potential buyer of the property to gain access to it. When the real estate agent became suspicious because most of the supposed buyer's questions were about the owners of the property and not the home itself, she revealed that she was really a reporter tasked with digging up dirt on the Kilbergers and we. Even today, hateful messages continue to be posted online. Reporters relentlessly probe the personal lives of the brothers and their families, and the Kilbergers have to worry about the safety of their loved ones. This was the backdrop while Mark and Craig were preparing for their turn answering questions before the FINA committee. What was originally supposed to be a standard one-hour session grew to two and then four hours as opposition MPs demanded more and more of their time. Only one witness in recent history had testified before a House committee for anywhere near as long, and that was former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould who'd asked to testify on the SNC-Lavalin affair. As soon as the brothers appeared on screen to be sworn in, the toll of the past year was evident. They looked tired and seemed exceedingly uncomfortable. It was difficult to watch. I've known them since high school, and they were always the epitome of self-assurance. They have met, impressed, and persuaded some of the world's most serious and accomplished people. You do not get up in front of the likes of the Dalai Lama, Mikhail Gorbachev, or Desmond Tutu unless you're confident in what you have to say. And you do not recruit captains of industry like Facebook COO Cheryl Sandberg, KPMG Global Chairman Bill Thomas, and Virgin Group founder Richard Branson to champion your cause unless you are focused and on message. Love them or hate them, the Kilbergers could stand and deliver. This was different. This was four hours of interruptions, hostility, and barely concealed contempt. When I thought back to Craig's previous appearances before parliamentary committees, it really brought home to me how much the tide had turned. In 2018, for example, 
He shared his views on social enterprise and the Canadian charitable sector with a Senate committee and was treated with respect by members of all political stripes. Conservative Senator Yona Martin was just one of many who lauded Craig's work and expertise. Mr. Kilberger, she said, I've been a fan of the work that you are doing with our youth. So it's really great to hear from you this evening. I have so many questions about social enterprise because I know people who are doing such good work in Canada. In fact, Craig was so respected in parliamentary circles that the Independent Leaders Debates Commission appointed him to its advisory committee in 2019. This nonpartisan committee was charged with reporting to Parliament on how to make future debates more equitable and accessible. Craig and Mark were about to become political roadkill in the opposition's quest to attack the Liberals and Justin Trudeau's desire to brush past yet another scandal. Pierre Polyev opened the questioning and then immediately interrupted whenever Mark and Craig attempted to respond. He was rude and abrasive and made comments like, answer the question then, and I'll repeat it for the fifth time, as if he himself wasn't the reason they were unable to reply. Chair Wayne Easter tried to get hold of the hearings early on by imploring Polyev to be reasonable. They're here for four hours, so we will allow them to answer, he chided. We will let the witness answer the question. In Polyev's first round of questioning, Easter had to intervene five times. Charlie Angus was even worse. At times, he condescendingly referred to the Kilbergers as boys, seemingly unable to muster even a sliver of respect for two accomplished men, recipients of the Order of Canada, no less. It felt as though Angus still viewed them as teenagers working out of their parents' basement and thought they deserved a scolding. Easter called him out 17 times in his first round for being disruptive and disorderly. Things will go a lot smoother if we allow an answer in detail and we'll all save time, the chair patiently explained. I want to give the witnesses an opportunity for a thorough answer. We have four hours with these witnesses. We should be able to allow them full answers. It was embarrassing to see sitting members of Parliament behave like toddlers in the throes of a temper tantrum, and yet they carried on like this all afternoon. At one point, the chair had to threaten to end the proceedings because of Polyev's behavior. As Craig pleaded to be given the time to answer the question he'd been asked, Polyev persistently interrupted to promote the false narrative that the Kilbergers stood to profit personally from the CSSG. Mark tried to explain that the program was governed by a contribution agreement that only allowed for we to be reimbursed for expenses. 
But Polyev sharply cut him off, saying, Pay to yourself. You are going to pay the expenses to yourself. It was a nonsensical turn of phrase. If you've ever been reimbursed for an expense, you've had money returned to you. But no one, including the Canada Revenue Agency, thinks that you've been paid money that should be treated as personal income. I assume Polyev figured that logic would be lost on those watching clips on the evening news. Finally, even the avuncular Wayne Esther got fed up. Mr. Polyev, he snapped, do I have to suspend this meeting? Now there will be order or I'll suspend the meeting and that's it, it's your choice. It was clear that once again, the hearing wasn't an attempt to get to the truth or present Canadians with a fuller picture of what happened. Instead, opposition MPs were more interested in sound bites and character assassination. We didn't really know what to expect. We knew it wasn't going to be pleasant, but we were prepared to provide answers on the CSSG. We did not anticipate that it was going to be like standing before a firing squad for four hours, Mark recalled. Every time we tried to pick ourselves up, there would be another round of fire. Punching bags. One subject that did get a lot of time and attention in this session was We Charity Foundation. Angus was the first to raise it, and he opened with a volley of misinformation. You move this money into what is essentially a real estate holding company with no oversight, he alleged. I never heard of a real estate holding company getting upwards of $500 million of taxpayer money to deliver a program. When Craig and Mark tried to explain that the foundation never held any real estate, that the We Charity Board was responsible for overseeing, and that we was to be reimbursed $43.5 million at the absolute most, Angus dismissed it, all with the shrug of his shoulders. There are no accountability mechanisms, he asserted. And a moment later, when Mark said they were happy to be able to set the record straight, he sneered, I'll bet you are. This was a gut-wrenching moment for me because I knew Angus was taking his cue from the testimony given by Michelle Douglas just before Mark and Craig's appearance. She had fanned the flames of opposition outrage by implying that the foundation was somehow dodgy. She said, for example, that when We Charity's executive team brought forward the idea of the foundation in 2018, the board had concerns. We simply didn't have enough information, she asserted. She testified that she had considered the matter deeply, thinking about the interests of stakeholders and contributors to the organization, frankly, and thinking about all the youth who had done fundraising and that no resolution on the foundation was ultimately brought to the directors because she thought the board did not have satisfactory information at that time. My jaw dropped. 
Her answer, while true, was completely misleading. I know because I was the person delegated by Michelle and the board to oversee discussions with external counsel and management on this issue. So I understood better than anyone what the foundation was and what it was not, what information was needed and had been provided, and what concerns had been raised and addressed. Let me be as clear as I can in unpacking this. We Charity Foundation is a registered charity. It is not a company or a business. We Charity was the founding member of the foundation, which meant that it had certain legal and governing rights over its activities. The foundation was established in consultation with We Charity's lawyers as somewhere to potentially place the charity's real estate assets to protect them in the event that the charity incurred a significant liability. In other words, it was a way for the charity to try to ensure that its real estate, which acted as a reserve fund for humanitarian projects, would not be subject to seizure by creditors if the organization was sued and owed a large amount of money. Every prudent company and nonprofit thinks about this topic. It was especially important to We Charity because We GLC had just been built with funds from several large donors and was worth tens of millions of dollars. As part of this oversight process, I engaged with outside counsel, advised the board, and ultimately determined that it would take time to develop a structure whereby we charity could both maintain indirect control of the real estate assets and at the same time cede control of those assets to a distinct legal entity so they would be protected from creditors. There were a lot of moving parts, and the board tabled discussion on the topic for a period because of more pressing matters. So Michelle was right when she said that the board wanted more information and paused in 2018 on the idea of using We Charity Foundation as a repository for real estate assets. But this had absolutely nothing to do with using the foundation for the CSSG, and We Charity's board at the time of the CSSG never had any concerns on this topic. When We Charity was later told by the government that it would need to assume all liability for the CSSG in the middle of the pandemic, the foundation presented a convenient solution. It was a charity that had never been used for any prior purposes. The government agreed that this would address the demand it had made. We had tens of millions of dollars of insurance, Mark explained, to the FINA committee which we added to the foundation to ensure that this whole initiative was protected. Of course, in the case of liability, the government, specifically the program, and taxpayers were well protected. We took that issue very seriously. So We Charity Foundation formally changed its mandate to allow it to administer the CSSG, signed the contribution agreement with the government, procured the insurance, and outsourced the actual work 
of administering the CSSG to We Charity. That's it. Michelle's testimony, however, offered none of this context and left the impression that there was something improper about the foundation itself. For opposition politicians, her open-ended statement that the board had concerns was manna from heaven, and they took her remarks and ran with them. Angus, in particular, was uninterested in hearing about the risk involved in assuming liability for tens of thousands of young people in the midst of a global pandemic, and instead kept returning time and again to what Michelle had said. Your board was concerned about it, he proclaimed at one point. Then a few minutes later, he said, the board raised questions about this. The board raised questions about this. And a few minutes after that, that's not what your former chair said. She said she did not know why you set this up. No matter how often and in how many ways Craig and Mark tried to explain why Angus's claims about the foundation were mistaken at best and deliberately misleading at worst, he just kept talking over them. But other MPs did seem to gain clarity as the hearing progressed. Sean Frazier, who was a lawyer himself, and called it routine for corporations to set up new entities to limit liability, said, what I'm hearing is that you stood to gain absolutely nothing financially, but you were asked to take on all of the liability for placing 40,000 or more students during a global pandemic. Pierre Polyev, though, didn't want to talk about the nuances of the charity structure or the finer points of the contribution agreement. He just carried on interrupting and then complaining that his questions weren't being answered. We're going to have to invite you back if you don't want to answer the questions, he said at one point. Let's bring him back for another four hours. Again and again, he demanded answers that had already been supplied until other members of the committee began to grow weary. Mr. Chair, have the conservatives run out of questions? asked Toronto MP Julie Zerowicz. They're starting to repeat multiple times. Sean Frazier made a similar observation. I'll start by just saying how frustrating it's been to be a part of this committee meeting. I'm glad that we have ample time, thankfully. The inability of members to remain silent when it's not their turn to speak is deeply discouraging. I find it disrespectful. These are the kinds of things that we learned how to do in elementary school. I thought columnist Judith Timmison commenting on the state of civility and politeness in Canadian society in an article in the Toronto Star captured the tenor of the moment well. Moving on to that volatile political sphere, she wrote, it was painful in terms of civility to watch the elaborately, performatively polite Kilberger brothers, Mark and Craig, in the public eye since they were teens and who now run the largest youth-powered international charity in the world, 
be treated with aggressive disdain and rudeness during a televised parliamentary committee hearing. Reflecting on what stood out most to her, she added, but what struck me during the Kilberger's lengthy testimony was the savage and unnecessarily rude behavior of lead questioner, conservative MP, Pierre Polyev, who interrupted each Kilberger many times as they sought to explain their relationship with the government and who sounded as if he was prosecuting them for murder. From my perspective, it is hard to see how the interest of the Canadian people were being served by the whole ridiculous display. There were important issues being raised, and they deserved a full and proper airing so Canadians could make up their minds instead of trying to wade through the political spin. Several MPs asked about the Kilbergers' interactions with the government, for example, and whether they should have registered as lobbyists. This was a fair question that merited a thoughtful discussion, but it didn't get that. Charlie Angus used two minutes of one of his three-minute question blocks to give a speech about lobbying and conflicts of interest, with a little misinformation thrown in for good measure. The fact is that you didn't bother to register to lobby, he declared, and yet you're promoting a project that is going to net hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't see how guys, men as sophisticated as you, don't recognize the obligation to follow what every other charity in the country does. Craig tried to explain that under the Lobbying Act, people are required to register only when they are paid employees. Mark and Craig were volunteers with the charity. And when a significant portion of employees' time is spent petitioning the government. In fact, it's 20% of their time. Neither the Kilbergers nor any of We Charity's paid employees ever met that threshold over the course of a year. That wasn't good enough for Angus, who then implied that any attempt to reach out for government funding made you a lobbyist. Craig fed up clapped back. That's not the appropriate definition of lobbying, sir, and I believe you know that. Angus's claim that we charity staff should have registered as lobbyists was not surprising given the story he was trying to tell of an organization that pulled on political strings and benefited from liberal cronyism. His narrative depended on portraying the Kilbergers as smooth political operators who knew their way around Ottawa. My impression is that many Canadians have bought into this idea. But the opposite is true. We Charity sought and received very little government funding and was not reliant on it to survive. In 2020, less than 1% of We Charity's operating budget came from federal funds. And perhaps even more surprisingly, according to an analysis prepared by none other than ardent We Charity critic Mark Bloomberg, 
Over a thousand Canadian charities received more federal money than we charity in 2019. Nonprofits that received more than 10 times as much include the Canadian Red Cross Society, $62.9 million, Care Canada, $51.7 million, Plan International Canada, $48.9 million, Oxfam Quebec, $29.5 million, and Aga Khan Foundation Canada, $29.4 million. So far from being deeply plugged into government, We Charity was not competing for federal dollars and did not engage regularly with government officials. There was thus no perceived need to register members of the We Team as lobbyists before Rachel Wernick reached out to Craig about the CSSG in April 2020. After the political and media firestorm, however, We Charity chose to join the Registry of Lobbyists, voluntarily listing all government interactions by all employees, from members of the technology team who worked with counterparts in the government to staff members who joined just one phone call. Since the Kilbergers were not employees of the charity, there was no place to list their interactions. So instead, they disclosed them all on the We Charity website. Of course, you would never appreciate any of this based on the questions posed to the Kilbergers and other witnesses. And the media, which could have unraveled the myth of a cozy relationship between We Charity and the government by pointing to these facts, stayed silent. It appears that there was little enthusiasm for telling a story that would make the story go away. As frustrating as it was to watch the smoke and mirrors exchanges initiated by Angus, Polyev, and other like-minded MPs, I could only imagine what it was like to be in the line of fire. Mark told me later that he and Craig felt utterly helpless and unheard throughout the lengthy hearing. We sat there for four hours and were maybe allowed to answer seven or eight questions in total without being interrupted, he said. There was really no reason for us to be there. We were just backdrops for the MPs to make their speeches and score political points. They were using us as punching bags while taking shots at the liberals. Watching it unfold, I could not help feeling that I was witnessing an alarming display of what I see as the increasing Americanization of Canadian politics. I suspect everyone understands what I meant by that. You can call it a zero-sum game, the politics of anything goes, allegiance to party over principles, or the ends justify the means. By any name, the bitter partisanship that characterizes so much of what happened south of the border is something that Canadians have grown accustomed to seeing. Every topic, even one as straightforward as the need to wear masks during a pandemic, becomes fodder for political finger-pointing and posturing. Alternative facts, a term that once sounded comedic, 
is now the norm in the U.S. as most politicians and news outlets peddle their own version of reality. The hard work of separating fact from fiction is left to erudite publications that fewer and fewer people read. When the public space becomes so polarized, it is hard to get things done and often impossible to find common ground with those of a different political bent. Even when people have shared values and a shared history. As a Canadian who has been living and practicing law in the U.S. for almost two decades, I confess to having become an American political junkie. But like many consumers of political drama, I recognize that my interest often comes more from its entertainment value than an appreciation of high-minded policy debates. That is in part because cable news networks and even congressional hearings typically offer only shrill speeches designed for each party's political base. The echo chamber is noisy, and middle ground is elusive, if not absent. As Canadians, and I say this admittedly as an expat, looking back in, we have always fancied ourselves above the partisanship that causes many Americans to view all issues through a red or blue lens. After all, we are too polite to succumb to the go for the jugular approach, too thoughtful to form views on important issues by reading tweets, and too secure in our social contract to allow politics to inflict collateral damage on others. To my mind, the We Charity scandal is an invitation to reflect on the validity of these premises. My concern is perhaps best captured in the rationale offered by Jody Wilson-Raybould when she decided not to run for re-election in 2021. Federal politics, she said, is increasingly a disgraceful triumph of harmful partisanship over substantive action. The death threats the Kilbergers received and the social media vitriol directed at We Charity and its staff also require us to reflect on the serious consequences of extreme partisanship and misinformation peddled for the purpose of political gain. Journalist Gary Mason described these consequences in stark and sobering terms in an opinion piece in the Globe and Mail. Having observed the growing presence of extremist elements on the campaign trail for the 2021 Canadian federal election, he wrote, the fact is the pandemic has unleashed or perhaps revealed another pandemic, one of hate and extremism that is fed by a proliferation of lies and misinformation. We witnessed the danger inherent in this phenomenon when hundreds of supporters of former U.S. President Donald Trump stormed the Capitol in January. Well, there are likely thousands, maybe tens of thousands, of people in Canada who pose just as much of a threat to our institutions, to our way of life, to our democracy. Far-right extremism 
doesn't just reside in Canada. There are many who believe it's thriving, with social media being its poisonous lifeblood. Calling out those in positions of power and influence who are contributing to the dark pool of misinformation, Mason argued that dealing in lies cannot be dismissed as just politics. He warned against thinking this is innocent stuff that doesn't influence those making up the toxic mobs we've seen recently. We're on a perilous course right now, and unless we attack this problem with vigor, horrible things are going to happen to this country. Going back to the FINA hearing, for me, the only balanced moments came when Craig and Mark got a little testy or spoke more personally about events that had affected them or issues that were of importance to them. For instance, when Edmonton conservative MP James Cumming tried to suggest that perhaps the Kilbergers had a scheme to make up expenses and charge them back to the foundation as a way of funneling money to themselves, Craig pushed back. We Charity is being raked over the coals by inaccurate statements like yours. The contribution agreement outlined the eligible expenses exactly, he said. We were not making this up on the side of a napkin. And in response to a question from Quebec MP, Real Fortun, who repeatedly implied that Margaret Trudeau lacked the educational qualifications to speak about mental health issues, Craig said. Sir, she has lived a life. I have lost a sister-in-law from mental health issues. It's a lived experience issue. It's not an academic training issue. The brothers also engaged in a meaningful exchange with Northwest Territories MP Michael McLeod, who talked about how the charity had created platforms for indigenous voices to be heard in classrooms through its We Stand Together campaign and how it had worked to promote indigenous history in schools. Craig noted that the organization's international development sometimes overshadowed its domestic initiatives, but he spoke eloquently about the importance of We Stand Together and a second indigenous-focused campaign, Sacred Circle, which was a leadership training program for indigenous youth, most often in fly-in communities in Canada, to help young people be social entrepreneurs, to identify a problem in their own communities, and then to be the heroes of their problem and help to solve that issue. This story of what was really at stake for students and teachers and anyone else who was a supporter of the charity and believed in what it stood for is one the media has never taken the time to tell. And opposition politicians didn't seem to want people to hear. But it's the story that matters the most in all this. And I'm glad that toward the end of the grueling hearing, there was at least some small chance to reflect on that. In his last question of the day, McLeod asked, what we're not hearing about is what this whole initiative was focused on 
and that's the youth. That's what concerns me the most. We know youth now are facing a real loss of opportunity, and there may be no replacement program. I haven't seen it yet. Could you talk about what shutting down this whole initiative, this program, is going to cost the youth? Craig looked like the weight of the world had lifted off his shoulders for a moment. A question we have never been asked by any journalist or anyone here today is what was lost when it came to young people in the process, he said. We had an extraordinary service opportunity lined up with Rotary and others to link young people to seniors to help document their lives to help overcome the reality of dementia, with so many seniors being in social isolation. We had a beautiful program lined up with hospital networks where there would have been support for nurses and their kids at home to make sure that they had digital mentors so that the nurses could take care of us and not be afraid. We had a beautiful partnership lined up with Tim Horton's foundation camps and others because all of the other camps had stopped over the summer. And young Canadians would have provided digital camp coaching experiences to these youth to help mentor and support them in this process. All of this good was lost, he lamented. All of these extraordinary service opportunities were lost. When the camera switched off, Craig told me, both he and Mark slumped in their chairs. I was exhausted, he said. My shirt was drenched. That was the most intense four hours of my life. Scapegoats. Two days later, it was Justin Trudeau's turn to testify. But while we's employees and co-founders had together spent more than five hours fielding questions. The Prime Minister himself appeared for only one hour, barely longer than a regular daily session of question period. He offered no defense of We Charity and mostly sought to deflect responsibility for the CSSG debacle, other than admitting that he should have recused himself from the cabinet discussions given his family ties to we. But he stressed that he not put his thumb on the scale for the charity. I did not intervene to make this recommendation happen, he asserted. When the recommendation came forward from the public service, I sent it back to say that they really needed to make sure that this is indeed the only organization that can deliver this program and that this is done exactly the right way because there's going to be careful scrutiny on this. At that point, I should have recused myself, but I didn't. I decided to push back instead, and that I regret. For the first time, Trudeau also addressed the future of CSSG, acknowledging that it was essentially dead, which meant that up to 100,000 Canadian students who could have looked to the program for support were on their own. It's now July 30th. Our government is delivering 
an up to $9 billion aid package for students, he said. Unfortunately, the grant for volunteer service is unlikely to be part of the package this summer, and that is something that I regret. The next day, July 31st, Trudeau attended an event with the Public Health Agency of Canada to launch the government's COVID alert app. Afterwards, he faced questions from reporters about his FINA appearance. When asked by a CBC journalist if the CSSG was, in fact, no more, Trudeau replied, that is the element that's not happening so far. We are still looking at ways that we can coordinate, oversee, and deliver grants like that to students. We're still looking for it. But at the same time, just because the grants aren't flowing doesn't mean that young people are not stepping up in a myriad of ways across the country to contribute to their communities and support Canadians. As I write this, we've seen the end of our second COVID summer, and there still has been no government-run program to provide grants to students for serving their communities. At the close of the press conference, Trudeau did make one small attempt to loosely defend We Charity. The challenges that have followed for the We organization and indeed the questions that have been asked of this government have been disappointing, he said, because it gets in the way of the help that we focused on doing for young people. The WE organization has been extremely effective in empowering young people and getting them to volunteer. Obviously, the situation that has flowed from this is deeply regrettable, and I'm deeply sorry that I didn't recuse myself from the beginning. It possibly could have avoided much of this challenge. Instead, I chose to push back and ask for extra due diligence. But that wasn't the right choice, obviously. My first thought after that press conference was, thanks for nothing, Dalal told me. Our team had worked themselves to exhaustion and it pulled off miracles to help the government deliver the program on an impossible timeline during a pandemic. We had been beaten up for it, and this was the most the Prime Minister could offer to defend we? The media and politicians all said that we Charity and Trudeau were close friends. Well, with friends like that, who needs enemies? Thank you for listening. You can download more episodes of What We Lost wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about Tafik Rangwala's national bestseller or to buy the book, visit whatwelost.com and discover the real story behind the CSSG controversy.